guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. I am Sophia Amoruso, the founder of NastyGal.com, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Girl Boss, and the author of Nasty Galaxy, a beautiful, fully illustrated and linen-bound book full of color with everything from how-tos to a trip inside my house and my closet to Q&As with different women who inspire me. You can reserve your signed copy today at NastyGal.com slash book or find Nasty Galaxy anywhere books are sold. On this podcast, I interview a different woman who's carved out a path for herself. We trace her from her first job to how she got to where she is today to extract solid advice for our listeners who are doing the same with their lives. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girl Boss. You can sign up for our newsletter, Girl Boss Diary, by going to girlboss.com, and you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso at Sophia with a PH, Amoruso, A M O R U S O, on Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you to achieve your goals, or at the very least, provides some amount of inspiration for you. So please help me achieve my goals. Help Girl Boss achieve its goals. We can do it together. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share your love for this podcast on social media. We were in the top 60 podcasts this week. So with your help, we can stay there and maybe move up the ranks. As you might have heard over the past couple weeks, we've been revamping the show with some exciting improvements that we'll be rolling out for the podcast in the next couple of months. So keep tuning in and you'll be able to hear about all the fun stuff we've planned. For the time being, I'm your host, solo. There are no riffs. It's just me riffing with you, with your girl boss moments, and then jamming out with these amazing interviews. With that, let's get to the girl boss moments. So if you guys don't know, girl boss moments are the time in your week where you feel like you're in control of your life, where you're living your life deliberately and you're doing things for yourself for the right reasons and not because it's what people expect of you. It's also okay to do what people expect of you, but only because you want to. Anyway, Lexi W at Lexi Hope says, when your previous client sends you an email saying she misses you, hashtag girl boss moment. Ooh, time to get that client back. Sadia, my fair lady Sadia says, just negotiated and accepted an amazing job offer and feeling confident and deserving of this new opportunity. Cool. I think I retweeted that one. At I am Ambi Bambi, <laughs> three weeks into my new job and a manager from another store tries to recruit me to be a lead manager. Hashtag girl boss moment. Hashtag but I'm loyal though. Good for you. Loyalty is an important thing to cultivate, especially for us millennials who like shiny objects. Cat at cat underscore hill says hashtag girl boss moment signing my first NYC lease without a co-signer. Hashtag adulting. That's really cool. That's a big deal. New York is so expensive. I've never lived there, but I don't know. Barbara Minaro at B Minaro says, I was offered my first solo exhibition. That sounds super fancy. I have never had an exhibition. What are you exhibiting? Yourself? Hopefully not. I don't know. Good thing? Bad thing? Uh, Rachel Dance at Rachel underscore Dance says, gave my boss respectful full month's notice and I'm moving to Singapore in October to start my social investment company. Wow. I can't tell you guys how grateful I am to have listeners like you who are doing things that inspire me and all of our other listeners who are going for it, who hopefully only give yourselves credit for making your lives great. I can provide some inspiration. We can share other women's stories on this podcast. We can share all of your girl boss moments until the end of time. But ultimately, it's you that's going to make your life great. And 
just reading these is proof that you are. So thank you for being such an incredible community. So you guys, on to the interview. When film season approaches every year, our guest, Roya Rastigar, can be found buried behind her laptop watching a lot of movies. That's because she's the director of programming at the Los Angeles Film Festival. It's her job and the job of her team of 50 to collectively watch 6,000 films a year and curate some of the best independent films from around the world. As a self-proclaimed outsider, uh, join the club, (laughs) Roya has made it her mission to make cinema representative of all types of people. Her two years at the festival have reflected that mission and in turn, ticket sales have increased almost 50% year over year. Before working on the festival circuit, Roya graduated from UC Santa Cruz with a PhD in, okay, pretty cool, the history of consciousness, studying under civil rights activist and famed academic Angela Davis. You might have heard of her. Um, she's a good friend. She's also engaged to Moj Madara, who was on this podcast, whom we all love, and one of the smartest people I know. So I'm so excited to have Roya on the show. Welcome, Roya. Thanks for having me. On Girl Boss Radio. I've known you for a little while. I think this is our first exclusive conversation. I know. I mean, I'm excited. I, I, th- I feel like, we've, like there's not had most, we've had some pretty philosophical conversations in very social settings. So I feel like in this setting, like we might really like hit it out of the park. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint anybody. Um, but I start the top of every podcast with the same question, which is like, what was your first job? And, you know, as someone who's had many careers, I think it's just like super fascinating. To so I kind of began. had two jobs at the same time yeah very sheltered background so I wasn't really allowed to like go out of the house and I wasn't driving because I was really young uh, but I worked in my school's library uh-huh at what grade eighth grade oh wow yeah Ninth did you get paid through that time no. uh yeah they paid me I think it was like four dollars and 25 dollars and 75 cents like it was really like yeah. a low amount but it was fun because I got to shelf books and catalog them and yeah. figure out just like where all the books went. So I, whenever I see a book, like your book that's about to come out, Nasty Galaxy, I'm uh, always like, uh-huh. I wonder where that would go. I love alphabetizing things. I've done, I've worked in bookstores, photo labs where you have to like file people's photos and under their name and record stores. Um, oh, so good. I feel like I've had so many jobs alphabetizing things and it's really like meditative. I don't know. Do you know the alphabet or do you have to go LMNOP? I still have to go like LMN. There's certain letters I think that I have to kind of reverse engineer into right. like understanding their place, <laughs> but then there's others where I'm like L is definitely before T. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, wait. So you had two jobs. So then my other one was uh, the Olympics were in town in 1996. Uh-huh. It was like a couple years later, and there was like a competition for teen writers that CNN. And USA Today were putting together. And so I wrote this article about Freaknik, which is basically like an African-American spring break that used to happen. Oh, Freaknik? Freaknik. Cool. Um, it was so awesome. It would like shut down the city of Atlanta and everyone would just hang out like in the streets, on the freeways. That sounds and so fun. It was so awesome. And I think my parents were always like, what are these people doing? But I was like, this looks like fun. I want to <laughs> go with them. But I, I called all these Congress people and um, just called a lot of people wrote an article about Freaknik, and then I submitted it, and then I was accepted, and so I got to cover the Olympics as like I got a press pass for the 1996 Olympics oh as, a, as a teen. Wow! And I had they paid me like they actually paid me f- to write for wow. CNN, 
online, which is like a new thing. Still. And um, USA Today. So that was cool. So it's fair to say that you were a precocious child. Yeah. I heard you. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's like you, it's precocious is such a funny word because I feel like there's an age and I'm not just talking about you and this is not a judgment, but I just feel like there's an age where you're, you can no longer be precocious and it's disappointing totally. to no longer be like impressive for your age. Yeah. I feel like there was a time where I like really rode that and I was like, I'm 18 and people would be like, wow. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, it was different. I wasn't like a getting grants or, you know, becoming, like, accomplished, but somehow was still impressing people. And I'm, like, teetering at 32, I think. Yeah, when I turned 30, I was all of a sudden not you're impressive like, anymore. Yeah, no, 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 you just, yeah, you're just, like, living life. Um, but you entered first grade at what age? I was four, and then I turned five. I was an infant, and... It was crazy. My parents are... Iranian immigrants in Atlanta, they were so over ambitious for what they wanted for me mm-hmm. that they were just like, just lie. Just say she's like six. Oh, my God. So and I didn't speak English, but my mom had taught me English numbers because we were like doing SAT flashcards uh-huh. at like a very early age. Did you, what did you speak? Farsi? Yeah. I spoke Farsi. Are numbers different in Farsi? Yeah, they're totally different. Really? They're really pretty, actually. And you can learn them. They're like easy. To, oh, like visually they're different. Yeah. So like wow. a two doesn't look like a two. It looks like a. Yeah. Okay. Um, like a U with a line down it uh so yeah i remember that was like my second language was basically numbers numbers numbers. and like math and we were doing it in uh crayon i mean it was really early i was doing my math homework in crayon wow Um, but yeah that was a problem because i think i never i feel like kindergarten is awesome you can learn like your left and right you get to play you get to play which i never really got to do have you experienced that as an adult where you're like i need a sense of play in my life i'm too cerebral i studied the history of consciousness and (laughs) um have taken on a lot of responsibility in my in my career and in the influence that i have in the world or if you're like i just want to play with like a bucket full of rice i love that stuff yeah so like color me mine i would go there all day (laughs) amazing like or play-doh or Uh i love games i love playing yeah i think a sense of play even in your work is really important um do you feel like you're because you said that you were sheltered growing up was there a time where you were like because i felt like i was kind of sheltered in many ways which is why i like busted out my parents split up when i was 17 and i'm an only child and i was like see ya like they would totally. never let me – I mean, I had to like cry and beg to go to like a boy's birthday party in sixth grade or to go to like a middle school dance. It was as though like people were like humping in the corner. Like totally. I don't know what they were thinking. Like, were you allowed to spend the night at people's houses? Because I was not allowed girls to Girls in night. high school, yeah. And I would well, – I was not allowed to because who knew who their brothers were? Who knew who their totally. fathers were? And what is, if the pizza guy came over? I mean, and like, I mean, I did say I was staying at my girlfriend's houses when I'd go like make out with her brother – in his house or what? You know, but, yo, that's so cool, though. It's disgusting. I didn't lie a lot, actually. I was, I was, I got in trouble in school, but generally, I was like a really good kid. But did you resent that growing up? I mean, I don't know how you don't. And then in <laughs> retro, well, I did. But in hindsight, I feel like that kind of parenting it can either destroy you or you can look back and be like, thank you so much. Like, I'm so glad my parents cared that much because I always thought it was the parents who would let their kids do whatever they wanted who were like the cool parents. And I'm pretty happy my parents were like hard asses. I don't know. Yeah, I can I can see the benefits of it. I mean, I did SAT flashcards my whole life with oh, my mom. Oh, my God. 
she was like on me. Amazing. And then my dad would give me like copies of The Economist and tell me to just write them from beginning to end. So my handwriting is awesome. Whoa. Whoa. Really like in addition to my regular homework, which was like Latin and calculus and super fun. I like loved it. But it was like easy compared to what my parents were making me do. But I, th- I feel like, yes, I got really good at school. But Sophia, I'm going to ask you at a certain point. Life is not school, so mm-hmm. I can take a mean test, mm-hmm. but people are not giving me tests anymore, so. But your brain has been trained the way brains were like a hundred years ago, I think. Yeah, I, I think have the a very The rest of us were brain. like watching Pee Wee's Playhouse and wishing we had foil balls. There should be a movie about that, and but they'd probably put a dude in it. That's um, true. That's true. That's true. Totally. So, um, but then you had an internship at 17. Yeah, magazine. So I was obsessed with magazines as a kid. Um, yeah. I grew up in this like very racist, kind of segregated place in Atlanta, and um, it was just kind of scary. We had like Confederate Flag Day. People called me the N word. Like it was really a weird, wow, place to grow up. And so I just put my head in a book, and I became obsessed with one studying and getting out to go to college, but also just magazines. I loved magazines, and I loved Seventeen magazine so much. And so when I went to college, I applied for this internship. They wrote back and they were like, thanks so much for your very enthusiastic application, but (laughs) you are, this is like for seniors only. Uh And so I went to New York on my spring break and I looked up the lady at HR and I went to see her and I was like, hi, I applied for that internship. I know you rejected me, but I still really want to work here. And? Well, I guess somebody had maybe just dropped out the day before or something, and she was like, okay, like, uh, we'll get back to you, um, but let me show you the offices. And oh, nice. I was like, you don't even need to show me. I, I already know. Just show me my desk. I really want to work here. And I heard you walked by someone's desk that your resume was, like, still sitting on. And Yeah. Her, her name was Debbie, like, Raynaud, and, huh. yeah, she had written on my resume, very persistent. That's good. So, Do you still consider uh, yourself very persistent? Yeah. Who taught you that? Who taught you to be annoying? Because you seem like a really introverted person. Well, because I think no one was going to give me anything uh-huh. just because I was like, I don't know. I don't think anyone was ever going to give me anything. Like no one was going to help me with anything. Yeah. If I didn't ask it for it. So like I, I really wanted to go to Wellesley and I got on the wait list. And so I basically harassed the Wellesley admissions office wow. and the lady who interviewed me until they finally just let me in. Wow. <laughs> so I just No, that is the way the world works. It's kind of horrible, but I just feel like if there's a chance, I'm going to try and push it as much as I can to mm-hmm. that other side. Um, I don't do that as much maybe anymore, but And you've kind of studied the way influence works in the world. I mean, which I want to get into your PhDs in the history of consciousness and it seems like there's a lot of exploration of patterns and, you know, whether it's trend forecasting here at Nasty Gal or you thinking about the way culture is shifting through, you know, what's coming up in documentary films or just having the knowledge that like repetition makes change. Um, I think that's just like a really interesting thing and something that you can break down to the most basic level that's like I don't know. Does, I lo- that, does that make sense? I love repetition. I'm trying. You had me at repetition makes change. That's uh-huh. so true. Yeah. I feel like you just have to like keep going at it, keep going at it, keep going at it. Totally. Until it like. Yeah. Like, I think Brian down. Eno might have a quote. I think it's Brian Eno that repetition is a form of change. I don't know if it's a form of change, but I do it's think like it, a, it creates change. Right? Yeah. I think it does create change. I love that. Yeah. But then you had a real job. Yeah. First real job. I was an investment banker. 
I was really good at it. I kept trying to get fired because I I knew I just didn't really want to do it. Uh Then my boss there, he was trying to mentor me. He took me in. He was like, I think, into his office. He was like, I think, you know, you're really going to make it in this business. There's two ways to like get to the top as a woman. You can either sleep your way up. Whoa. And I was like, shit. Is he about to hit on me? God, and so just weird. so you guys know, she's not 60 years old. This is like in modern times. This is right. like a decade ago or something. Yeah, this is like in the early 2000s. <laughs> and so then he was like, the second way is to be a dragon lady. And that's what I think you are. Just like cold, focused, and just like work your way right up to the top. And I was just like, okay. Wow. And I kind of felt like grateful that he had even talked to me because he was like the VP of mm-hmm. my team or whatever. But then, I, I don't know, later I had just like this brain wave because it was like, I think I'd worked for like 20 days straight, no breaks. It wow. was like two in the morning. I was just exhausted. I love Excel. Like I, I love working on numbers, but I was developing these like derivatives. I was working on developing these Islamic derivatives because you can't earn interest in the Muslim religion. So oh, they were wow. trying to ask me how to figure out this instrument where I could you know, it would work or whatever. That's super interesting. It was, it was, that's the thing. It was like so interesting. But then I was like, what am I doing here? Like, why mm. am I doing this? And I just started to feel like I wanted, like I wanted a revolution. Like I, I called myself a socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say that I was feeling the burn 15 years early. So at what point did you get your PhD? Did you go straight from your bachelor to your, well, no, you have a master's. Mm-hmm. Well, Is that how it works? Yeah, actually, I mean, it was kind of like a cheat because I went from my, like, I was at Wellesley. Yeah. And then I did banking for two years. Mm -hmm. And then from the banking, I went for the PhD. Okay. And then from the PhD, it just, they kind of just give you a master's first. They're like, oh, hi, you've been here for three years. Here you go. Oh, nice. And then you just keep going and then you get the PhD. Cool. Do they ever just give out, like, master's to people who don't have undergrad? Yes. I, like, want one, but I don't know who to ask. Yeah. Actually, with History of Consciousness, you can totally go there even if you don't have an undergrad an undergrad or a high school education. Wow. Because that whole program's philosophy is about your brain and, like, what your brain is. It's not about what previous education you've Yeah, gotten. what stuff you shoved into your brain. Right. Absolutely. Which I think is what a lot of school is right now. It's about, like, learning stuff. And, it is. Um, I was a professor at Bryn Mawr, and mm-hmm. a lot of my students would always ask me if they should go get their PhDs, and I really don't recommend it for a lot of people. I actually don't even think college is for everyone at all. I feel mm-hmm. like it can actually ruin your brain, because I think that the way that college and academia is set up is, like, so that you learn stuff, at mm-hmm. least in the humanities. I think in the sciences is different. But in the humanities, it's just about learning stuff and, like, mm-hmm. putting it in your brain and not yeah. learning about how to think Absolutely. and how to train your brain. Yeah. And I um, I really, really admire people who are able to train their brain How do you train your brain? Like structure. Do you have any, like, brain exercises? Brain exercises. <laughs> I did lumosity for a while, but it oh, didn't, I've heard didn't of that. really work. I was like, this is this is so involved. I'm going to go check my inbox. I mean, I trained my brain just – I mean, I'm kind of an obsessive – I have an obsessive brain, but I think a lot of people yeah. might. I mean, Angela Davis, who was my professor, Gina Dent, who no, was my professor. No big deal. Uh-huh. Yeah, no big deal. Um, just drop that name. Okay. But 
they are really, really great teachers. Yeah. And so they taught me how to kind of read and watch and see things. I've had really, really great teachers. Yeah. But that being said, you can also teach yourself or be around really smart people and Absolutely. learn. Like, you are so smart. Oh, so, thanks. But you're smart because you're, like, looking at patterns and you're constantly doing it, but you're training your own brain. Yeah. You, know? you mean you studied the history of consciousness. One, what is that? <laughs> Uh, can you That's tell That's a us? really good question. Um, <laughs> I guess my standard line is it's kind of like a history of intellectual thought, which is it's like a – I study how people think. I study how people know stuff mm-hmm. through time. It's like a love affair between philosophy and psychology. Mm-hmm. But like looking at media. so that seems like the most fun, fun thing to study. It's really, really fun. You and when you do it, it's like you can't ever go back. Mm-hmm. Like everything that you see is like not. Is it hard real. not to judge other people having studied like what it is that's actually going on in their heads or lives or in politics and history? Like, is it do you feel like you can kind of sit back and cross your arms and be like, I've seen those patterns. <laughs> like, I know what's going happened? on here. I know what's going I on. I have the answer. History repeats itself. <laughs> no. I mean, what I do is I, I often see how people are not um, – like how all the Trump people are over here talking about themselves uh-huh. and how all the Hillary people are over here talking about themselves and both sides are calling each other stupid. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of like interested in that – so petty. That middle part of like yeah. what's that disconnect? I'm interested in like the disconnects and what are the conversations and how do they overlap? Hmm. But I'm always trying to understand what the other – yeah. Um, like other people are thinking. Yeah. I mean, I th- it's really easy to just look at someone that you disagree with and be like, oh, psh, not even I'm ignoring that or, you know, I'm just going to pass judgment. But you're not even entitled to an opinion without empathy. Right. Yeah. Totally. I don't. I really don't think you are. I mean, do you feel like people have empathy on either side of like, I mean, even um, with the Hillary and Bernie people, I feel like there wasn't. No. Much empathy on either side. No. It's just people just shouting their opinion. Yeah, because I think that they're uncomfortable doubting um, the two stories that are being told in the world right now, and they think there is no gray area. And a lot of people just kind of, I mean, historically, and I'm no historian, um, people just like following other people. It's yeah. way easier to just throw up your hands and be like, I pick you. Right. And then then be like, I don't agree with anybody, but this is how the world works. So I'm going to go over here and do this for now. And what you were just saying around the stories, it's like people pick stories that are like compelling to them Mm -hmm. to follow. And what's so awesome about like your book, Girl Boss, is that sure, there have been like other female entrepreneurs, right? There have been Mm -hmm. like other female. So many. So, so many. Right. But what you did was you kind of came in and you told this like story about being a girl boss and your story of like girl bossdom was not about I did this and then I did that and then everything I did everything mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. Your book is all about like, like all your failures and all of your I mistakes. Joseph Campbell myself. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. And it's just like I think that's so cool. Like you create the story of like how yeah. to be a boss in this way that's like it's not it's, it's not about about pers- being, it's personal responsibility. Yeah. Personal responsibility and growth and what you do with your failures. Yeah. You know, it's okay to unlearn. That's a that's a new story. Rewire. Totally. And what's so awesome is you're like leading that story for so many people, and so that's why it's crazy that people have their own opinions. It's which is the awesome. most rational and the most radical thing at the same time. The like, story, just that mode of thinking. that yeah. it's all of our responsibility to think for ourselves. Like for some reason, that's resonated really hugely, and I understand why because my book was a response to all the like 
self-help books out there that are saying like, if you do these 10 things or these 12 things, then this is what will happen in your life. And it's just been like the history of the world is just like the history of uh, one snake oil salesman being louder than another. Yeah. I mean, not everyone's a snake oil salesman. I'm just saying. No, I was just thinking like like, your thing about thinking for yourself. Like, I feel like a lot of people think that they do think for themselves. A lot will happen if you think through the other person's kind of perspective as well. Mm -hmm. And, okay, my trick for doing that is to fall in love with the person. The one you disagree with? Yes. Like, in my brain. Uh So one of my favorite things about New York that I used, like, love, love about New York is riding. When I was a kid, I would ride the subway in New York. And I would, like, look at somebody on the other side. Like, maybe he's homeless or... Maybe it's just like some lady who's been on there for a really long time and she's had a really hard day and she's like really, really old or whatever it is. And I would just look at them and look at their eyes and their eyebrows and their nose or like the shape of their hand or Mm -hmm. something and like try and fall in love with them. Wow. And just to create empathy. And now in LA, I do that with cars because I'm a a bad driver, but other people are bad drivers. Don't focus too much on the other cars. You've got to put eyes on the road, Roya. (laughs) But I'm just like, who is this crazy person in that car? And then I'm like, Roya, try and fall in love with that person. Isn't it scary that like the people that you sometimes are like terrified of passing on a sidewalk are like the people that are like boxed up in little cars responsible for your life? Well, see, and what I do is I'm like, okay, just <laughs> like, imagine how to fix that. This is imagine this is like your grandma who you like love, and that's why she's driving so slow. Mm-hmm. Or like imagine that that guy totally. just got fired, which is the reason why he's so mad. Mm-hmm. And like I create these like stories about these people. Totally, and that helps them. And it also is like self serving. It's like anything that's good you can make selfish too, if it's <laughs> totally. easier. Totally, like. I'm going to live longer if I don't have spite just running through my veins, you know? Right, exactly. Uh, so you've studied change, and so many of our listeners are trying to make change in their lives. And, I mean, whether you like it or not, your life is changing every day. But then there's the change that we make for ourselves. And I think that's really what Girl Boss is about. And just given your life experience and the career changes that you've made, which we I, we haven't even gotten into, I'm just like going straight to the like Roya philosophy. What advice would you have for people trying to make change in their lives or to figure out what their calling might be and being brave enough to to do that? That's a really good question. The calling one is a good one. I always tell people to think about what it is that they actually enjoy doing on a day to day, and think about who they like hanging out with every day. Mm-hmm. Like those are the two things. So. I ultimately left academia because I think academia is like not evolving quickly and it's Mm -hmm. not changing as fast as it needed to be. And so I left. But also, I just don't think that academics are very happy. Like even at their most successful, I don't see academics as very happy. Mm -mm. And I think there's a way we can be very smart and intellectual and engage knowledge that's not in academia. So for myself, I love storytellers. So I went into film uh, because I... I love filmmakers more than anyone else. I just love people who tell stories. And so that would be, I would really think about what do you want to do? So I watch movies all day. That's like an awesome thing. <laughs> wah, wah. Really fun. <laughs> um, I have a terrible job. I really, really enjoy that. I enjoy taking in movies. I enjoy taking in stories, characters, all the rest. So that's something that I love doing. And I love hanging out with, pe- with filmmakers. So I would, like, even though you're good at something, do- doesn't mean you should do it. Mm-hmm. Because you might not love it and you might not enjoy it. And eventually it's such a dangerous thing. you'll burn out being good at stuff. Uh, yeah. It kind of is. Yeah, it's, yeah. And then in terms of like making change, 
Angela Davis actually told me this story once that I thought was so powerful. She said that when she was a kid in Alabama, it was segregated, and her mom took her to an amusement park, and they couldn't go in because it was whites only. And her mom turned to her and said, the world is not supposed to be this way. And it's not always going to be this way, but you're the one who has to change it. Mm-hmm. And I love thinking about just the world as this, as Plato. Totally. The world is Plato. Our culture is Plato. Everything is Plato. And we can just change it. Even the things that we think could never change, mm-hmm. right? So, like, I'm pretty sure back in the day, people didn't really think slavery would change. It had been there for hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. But people just made it change. Mm-hmm. You know, people totally. fought for that freedom. And it didn't come from the government. People think that it comes from the government, but it doesn't. It comes from people. How do you feel like, I mean, we live in an age of media, and yeah. you work at the L.A. Film Festival. You know, I found myself in media with the book and now a Netflix show and just this podcast. And I think media is this this thing that is has become – I mean, it's, we all know it's just everywhere. We're on our phones all day. There's so many things being shouted at us. But at the same time, it's such a powerful tool for change. And I think beyond media, entertainment. Um, I just – you know, if I appeal to – your like humor or other sensibilities, what I want to say in the world becomes a lot easier for you to appreciate and oh, possibly understand, right? Because you're disarmed. Mm-hmm. And I just think entertainment is, you know, something that we grow up as children, watching, listening, consuming. And then um, even as adults, whether or not it's funny or not, as a medium, it's like a little bit of like, um, yeah, it's like pre-digested as a medium for whatever it is that you want to get across. I don't know if you agree with that, but I imagine that. um, That's like in TV shows and stuff? TV shows, cinema, um, radio. I mean, I think in studio films and stuff like that, you definitely get that. The the films that I watch, which it's really cool because I get to watch like three to four hundred Sometimes 500 films a year. But the films that I'm watching are not like studio films. They're made for like $50,000 or Mm -hmm. $60,000, which is very, very little in the budget of a movie. And they're by independent filmmakers. So it's often just coming very unfiltered, like through Mm -hmm. a very unfiltered place. It's just like Mm -hmm. a raw story. But I think that stories are so important because if I'm kind of catching the drift that you're... Yeah, I'm just drifting. There, I like it. It's okay. it's so deep. It's so, so deep. <laughs> um, but if I'm just like catching your drift, it's... I think about this a lot. Like I think about, for example, with the Black Lives Matter movement or with um, like hate crimes against trans people or, or gay people. I feel like the reason why people hate other people for their race or their sexuality or their um, gender orientation it's not because of ignorance i actually think it's because they don't love them like they they cannot see how that person is worthy of love and is a lovely person so i don't mean like in a hippie way we get it like white and non-black people haven't been taught to love black people in our country which is why the like black is beautiful movement in the 70s was so awesome Uh, And I think that that's why films and like web series and any kind of story that you can tell about like yourself and your people Mm -hmm. is really important because you can teach other people to love you. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up, there was like such a disconnect between 
like everyone thought I was like a terrorist. And I was like, I'm so confused. Oh I'm God. not a terrorist. Like I, why would you say that? Like I was so confused. But then I would watch movies and it would show these Iranian people as like horrible people. And I was like, like I, I. That's s- how influence works. Yeah, that's yes. totally how influence works. But it was just a disconnect. I didn't get it as a kid because I was like, I had a whole other idea. So I started to create my own story. of Like mm-hmm. what's going on? You change fiction, you change what's real exactly in so many ways that's exactly right you right. change fiction then you change what's real and so i think that's why i'm so moved to do what i do yeah. and that's why i think what you do is so awesome because you're changing the whole narrative on how young women think about themselves and how young women Thanks. can tell their own stories like Thanks. that's so so powerful because then you change the reality mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yeah. so laws are awesome like i mean i i really would love for there to be laws in place for women to earn equal to men and all that like that yeah. would be super awesome but it's not actually going to change until the fictions changes until the story changes of what yeah. we think about women yeah. and and that story was never going to work kind of before you came along because before you came along the story about women being bosses was about them being like dragon women what that mm-hmm. what, what my boss told me which was like you need to just be cold and like move forward and like not have any flaws and work really hard mm-hmm. whereas you came by and you were like no actually this is how I did my girl bossdom yeah i think su- subtlety is you know something that uh goes like a long way yeah um 400 to 500 films a year do you leave the house yeah it mostly happens over a period of four months. I like wake up at seven in the morning and I watch movies until two in the morning. Wow. I will take my computer to the bathroom with me. What do you eat? Do you call it a crap top? That's so funny. Oh it's, my God. That's so funny. It's, it's, you have to, cause I've, I've been guilty of that. Not for work. Well, probably. I mean, I don't sit there for a long time. I just uh, can't put it down because yeah. I, if I put it down, then it slows the number of minutes of films I can get through. Uh-huh. And so I have to just keep going because then, like, for example, going to the gym basically takes me one film. Mm-hmm. So do you eat? So I can what choose. Do you I can either. Do you like kick your legs around while you lay on the sofa? Do you exercise? Like, what do you do? No, I will go to the gym. You will. Okay. But that, I'll just miss a film for that. Mm-hmm. But seeing friends during that time is hard because I'm like, I could see my friend where I could watch two movies. Mm-hmm. You're and never actually you need to missing get, like, anything. <laughs> Sorry. That's not true. Let's just go there. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you're... That's funny. There's nothing to miss. But, yes, I I have a lot of friends and they all live in the screen. <laughs> cool. Um, so you have a team of 50 people. Who are also watching films. Yes, we are a team of 50. They're so awesome. Um, our team is led by women. So it's me, uh, Jennifer Kochas, who is a filmmaker in her own right, and uh, Drea Clark, who used to run Slamdance Film Festival. So cool. John Wilson, Stephanie Owens. Uh, Stephanie Elaine is the one who brought me on. Uh, she's an awesome producer. She made Hustle and Flow, Dear White People. And she read this article that I wrote about the revolutionary potential of film festivals and really gave me the chance to kind of put into practice this curatorial methodology that I have been developing with Angela Davis and Ruby Rich during my PhD. Mm -hmm. So I had this whole methodology of like how to bring diverse stories to the forefront Mm -hmm. um, of film. And so she was like, Oh, do you want to try to do this thing that you have in theory in practice um amazing so it was so awesome and so i left brenmar and i moved to la and this i've done two festivals now yeah and the first festival everyone we had like half of our filmmakers were female directors half of them were directors of color um almost all of them were first-time directors cool 
And it was just really, really cool. And people were kind of concerned that maybe no one was going to come or show up because there weren't a lot of celebrities or movie stars in the films. But and then like a whole bunch more showed up in the year before. Yeah. Then ticket sales went up like almost 50%. Yeah. So, and that's because I think people just want to show up for cool films. Like people want to show up for films that reflect them. How do you manage taste? I mean, you have a team who's also reviewing films on your behalf. People are making suggestions. You know, even a nasty gal, it's like I have a team who's buying, a team that's designing, a team that's writing copy and doing photography and casting models. And so all of that requires taste. And that's something that can be very hard to distill throughout an organization. Do you have any tips for that for anyone who might be running a team where taste is involved? I feel like anything that you do where taste is involved, you have to have a very, very clear mission. Mm-hmm. And you have to be very explicit about the mission. And the mission can't be, like, vague. Like, we're looking for the best films. <laughs> like, that's just uh-huh. so – there are, like, over 12,000 films that are made every year, right? So it doesn't wow. make sense to say we're looking for the best. How many are submitted to you guys? About 6,000. Okay. And then we have room for about 100. 50 of them are short films. 50 of them are feature films. Wow. So it really, like, goes all the way down. It's a really big deal to show there. Then. Yeah. How much of that is, like – Mm, you can't answer that question. How much of it is garbage that gets submitted? Oh, well, I can't answer that. Really? Actually, because, and it's part of how to manage taste. Our team basically looks for films that we fall in love with. Mm. So I'm telling everybody to like, look for something that you haven't seen before. Look for something that's like rare. Look for a story or a character or something that just kind of like pierces you. Mm-hmm. And then they have to basically try and get other people to fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, on the so team. there's like a lobbying. There's a lot of lobbying, lobbying yeah. going on. So we have like ultimate, like the final decisions get made in a room of 13 people and people just have to like fight it out. Wow. Yeah. But basically I would rather have a film that four people loved and everyone else hated than have a film that everyone was like, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it gets heated. Yeah. It gets really, really heated. Just and like- I will remember films that I didn't fight hard enough for. Yeah, those films I carry with me. Or yeah. I will I will remember films that I was one of the people who was like, I hate that film. Uh-huh. I will never have that film in this festival. That is a horrible film. It's a fun place to be. And then it does really well at the festival. And oh. everyone loved it. And I'm like, what? So, like, managing taste is such a hard thing because you, you have to be open to your own taste always changing. Absolutely. And learning. Yeah. You know, like, learning where you were wrong. I'm just like, I'm wearing a baseball cap. Like, I never thought I'd do that, like, out in public. It's cute, though. Thanks. It's it's like a baby pink. It's my Cabo. What does it say? One and only Palmia. Yeah. It's yeah, like girl. a stupid co- I'm getting my weave fixed today, so I just rolled out of bed with, like, a... It looks good, though. It looks, like, fashionably, <laughs> like, out of bed chic. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I'm trying. That's my look. Yeah. I'm going for it. Um, When can we attend the L.A. Film Festival? So the L.A. Film Festival is in June, but there's a lot of other film festivals that are coming up. Toronto Film Festival is in September. That's a fun one. I've been working for Sundance for over a decade. And Sundance is going to be in January. January. So that's exciting. And then there's a lot of film festivals out there. And why is it important for us to attend film festivals? Film festivals are awesome because you go to be able to have an experience with the film that you're watching. And so, like, you can go to a movie at a regular movie theater and you just like go in and then you leave but at a film festival you get to go see a film often it's for the first time it's ever playing in the whole world and the people who are there are the people who really want to see it so Mm -hmm. if you're going to go see we had an ethiopian thriller um this year at the festival and the ethiopian community that went to the film they were just so beautiful like you have never seen so many amazing ethiopian people in a movie theater yeah 
And they just had the most awesome experience with the screen. Like they yeah. were able to have a conversation. And I think that well, where else can like, you know, it's like how yeah. many opportunities does an Ethiopian community have to witness like fiction being told about their own. Totally. Right. But also I feel like, you know, Coachella is like an awesome festival. Everyone loves going there. It's yeah. like where people can go and like have fun and be together. And I think that film is kind of like the OG live experience. Mm. Um, but somehow it's not that anymore, but I'm trying to make film live again. Mm. And so I went to see uh, Straight Outta Compton mm-hmm. in Crenshaw with my friend Ava uh, DuVernay, who's um, an amazing director. Yeah. And she has a film out actually coming out. It's opening the New York Film Festival, which is in October. Cool. And it was so much fun to watch that film in Crenshaw because all the audience was like interacting with the film. Amazing. And they were like owning it. It was their film. So I think before the film started, there was a really – kind of a very problematic a trailer for another film with this like white lady lying down on a bed and this like black claw reached over her and the people in the audience were all like oh no that is so messed up that is not (laughs) happening right now but it's just so cool because you know who's in the audience Uh and so when you're watching um, when you go to a festival you get to have that kind of back and forth live experience yeah. um, with the filmmaker who's often in the, in the theater with it's you. Like MST 3000, but in real life. Yeah. yeah. It's so much fun. It's like the best. And what's so cool is that when you go to a film festival and support a film like that, you get to show your enthusiasm for it, which then shows the film industry executives that are in the room that that film is important and there's a community for it. And then mm-hmm. hopefully they will buy it and they will – you know, it'll be on Netflix or it'll be able to get out into theaters out there. And that director can then make other films and they'll get hired for other projects. That's so cool. So attending a film festival gives you a lot of influence. Yes. It's really, really important to support cinema. Local (laughs) storytellers. So So you felt like an outsider your whole life. Do you still feel like an outsider? Yes. Yeah. If you ever stopped feeling like an outsider, would you be bummed? Yeah, I think so, because then I would be looking for where the outside was so I could go there. I feel like there's music I can listen to that's like downer music that makes me feel really happy because it's me sharing being an outsider with this like sad guy who's writing these moody songs or whatever. What is it that you do or listen to or watch or eat or who knows that makes you feel like really righteous in your outsiderdom? Oh, hands down, no question, Lana Del Rey. Really? I am like the biggest fan. I could write Uh, a whole thesis on how smart her music is. Cool. You know, I've been like a slow, I've been really slow on the uptake with her. I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it resonates. Maybe it's because it resonates. When I hear it, I like it. Her lyrics are really amazing, and I think she's a terrible performer on the Yes, it was the SNL performance. Yes. But here's what I'm going to say about Lana. She's like the first artist that really embraced how important artifice is like mm-hmm. the package the mm-hmm. outside the visual like the the objectness she made of that, womanhood she also made it really obvious yeah but she, she like but she leaned into that own, that's like she mm-hmm. created that you yeah. know i mean it was already there but she was like okay women are objects cool so i'm gonna be an object mm-hmm. and so that's why it works so well when you see videos, her videos are all amazing, but mm-hmm. she's not meant to be a live performer. That's like not. No, that's, she's made up. She should have never been a yeah. live performer because she's not. Um, How do you feel yeah. about women being objects? Just this, you know, the debate between like Kim Kardashian being a feminist because she's objectifying herself and Lana Del Rey using that to her own benefit or I don't know. Like how do you – what is the intersection of convention, exploitation – 
And like, oh man, this is a tough question. I don't a, even know what I'm this asking. This is such a good question. And I think that um, I really differ than most of my women's studies gender professors on this one. Uh-huh. I'm kind of a rogue academic. I'm too. I didn't. But I didn't <laughs> go to college. I love you so much. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, but I would say that I think that this like younger generation of women, Lana Del Rey included, I think their approach to feminism and and sexuality is just really, really different. So I think first wave feminism worked insofar that it was about like, let's break barriers and like, mm-hmm. you know, be able to have work in the workforce. And, and all those things were really awesome. But there was a way that there was a compromise around how women could express their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think women are objectified. That's just the way that it is. Like women have always been sexually objectified. And what I see in this like younger generation with Lana Del Rey included is that rather than resist that objectification mm-hmm. by like wearing long skirts and like, Mm-mm. you know, not having plastic surgery, I think what she's doing is she's being like, you know what? I'm going to take that objectification and I'm going to make it pleasurable Mm -hmm. for myself. Mm -hmm. And so she's like flipping the script and like incorporating it into herself. And I think that that's like a really interesting way. And I think it's like such ownership. It's ownership. Yeah, exactly. And there's a responsibility to it. when When you have influence. It's such a dangerous thing because people will follow you. People will follow. Yeah, that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. And then they don't have that amount of agency yeah and will mimic that but it's it's, it's a rep- they're it's replicating a it they're down. mimicking it they're mimicking it but they haven't they're really like it. they're not owning it it's and not theirs so they're caught following someone else's that's story. the danger of it yeah but you're what totally are you gonna right. do i mean if women are beautiful and we want to look beautiful and we want we want to use convention against itself and then take it back right that's just how the world works in many ways and yeah then, and i think that women taking ownership over how the world works and leaning into it rather than mm-hmm. i just i feel like people have leaned into it and i feel like anyone who thinks that kim kardashian is stupid or paris hilton is stupid <laughs> it's just like the stupidest person in the world because Amazing. i don't know two more brilliant women Really? Do you know them both? No, I don't know them personally. <laughs> but I just feel like yeah. there's a, there are a lot of rich girls out there who have names, uh-huh. who have made sex tapes even. They have figured out how well, to Kim do... Kim Kardashian is like next level. But she's created it herself. You can't... Like she's actually made it. Like she has crafted her story. And whatever it is, you can argue with it. But it's not a story that was put on top of her. It mm-hmm. was a story that she made herself. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can say, oh, her story is not famous for this, but... This is a woman who has made her own story. So how can we say that that story isn't? If you're any feminist. woman in history today who can make yourself a caricature, that's like fascinating. That's the way like amazing. culture, other people will take your story, consume it, mutate it, thank you for it. And then you're like, what? I didn't do, right. I didn't do anything. Because if you didn't do it, they would do it for you anyway. So you might Possibly. as well just be the person. Might as well control it, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Kim Kardashian controls her narrative. I think so. So I ask every one of our guests what your girl boss moment was in the last week. Do you know what a girl boss moment is? Yeah. It's like, you know, when you owned your life, which is probably not an uncommon thing for you. Um, mm. <laughs> was there a moment? <laughs> Actually, we just went zip lining Ooh. in Vancouver on oh, Grouse yeah. Mountain. And it was so awesome. And what was so awesome about it is like not being nervous and just owning the fact that I was like in between these two mountains, ziplining mm-hmm. across these like trees and trying to not be afraid and just to really be present with the fact that I was flying, flying in the sky. And I was like, how else? Like I couldn't be in a helicopter and get this view. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't be doing anything else except for this. And um, that cool. was really awesome. Cool. And if you could power brunch with one woman, who would it be? 
So I I have thought about this so much for for a very long time. Uh (laughs) Um, I've gone through so many women and had so many imaginary brunches in my mind. Uh But uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court Justice, because I think that um, even whenever she writes even a dissenting opinion about a law that was passed that she doesn't agree with, um, I will read her dissenting opinion. And it's just so boss. Like, I would love to sit down and just be like, what are you reading? What are you thinking? I just love that word dissent. I feel like nobody uses it. Dissent is a good one. Yeah, it is. She's just like, this is not going to pass, even though I agree with it or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to write about it. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why I disagree. Even though you guys all agree, I'm going to tell you why I disagree. Boss. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Raya, thank you so much. Thank you. This is really fun. Thanks. That was another episode of Girl Boss Radio. We'll be back next week, so please join in. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Emily Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thank you also to the band Phases for our theme song, I'm in Love With My Life, and Same Animal for our interstitial ditty. I'm Sophia Amoruso. I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>